Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Arenas. Hey everyone, welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We're recording this in the afternoon of Tuesday, August 21st. On today's show, we'll talk about a new Russian hacking report, this time targeting conservatives. Then we'll run down a busy news week for Facebook, including changes to its ad targeting and a heretofore secret plan to rate the credibility of its own users. A busy news week, and it's only Tuesday. Later, I'll be joined by Ryan Gallagher, a UK-based investigative journalist at The Intercept, where he reports on digital security and state surveillance. Earlier this month, Ryan broke a story on Dragonfly, a secretive Google project for China that would censor certain websites banned by the Chinese government. The vast majority of Google's employees, including one of its founders and board members, Sergey Brin, reportedly was unaware of this project. Project until Gallagher broke the story, and many Googlers are now livid. So, Will, we're not both in California anymore. You are in New York this week, right? That's right. I'm in Slate's cushy podcast studios here in Brooklyn, New York, and our producer Max Jacobs is here with me, so it's it's nice to be in the same place. Oh, I miss Max. Well, I'm glad you guys are both in the same room. I'm, I'm usually the only one that has that privilege. And so Russian interference is back in the news. I imagine it's going to be in the news again and again and again. But this time, the attack was not about social media. It was something that came from Microsoft. Will, can you fill us in? Yes. And to be clear, the attack didn't come from Microsoft, but the reports of the attack did. Right. Um, and we've, yeah, we've all been anticipating that Russian attempts to interfere in U.S. elections would not have ended with the 2016 election. Indeed, last month we heard from Facebook that they have detected signs of a coordinated meddling attempt uh, ahead of the U.S. midterms. Now, this week, Microsoft reports that it has detected an attempt by the Russian hacking group known variously as APT28 or Fancy Bear. It has some other clever names uh, or not so clever names. The attempt was to set up fake sites apparently to entrap employees of conservative think tanks. These are called spear phishing attacks or phishing attacks. They're trying to get Presumably, they're trying to get these people to log into a site and maybe download some malware or maybe enter some personal information that can be then used to compromise them in some way. And in particular, they're targeting conservative think tanks that have been outspoken about Russia. They've been encouraging a harder line against Russia in various ways or encouraging democracy promotion in Russia. So these are conservative groups that have broken with President Trump, who who seems to take a softer uh, approach toward Russia for whatever reason. Um, um, and they're now finding themselves on the wrong end of uh, Russian hacking attempts, the way that the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign did two years ago. Wow. So Russia's going after people that don't like Russia or groups that don't like Russia. Big surprise there. And I guess the, the biggest, biggest, biggest takeaway here is do not open files from somebody if you do not know who they are. And if you're weary of the email, get it checked out by your IT staff. But this is interesting because it shows that, you know, Russia is not just simply going after folks that are pro-Trump because these groups were uh, Republican, right? They were conservative or, or in favor of Trump. They were just anti-Russia. And so it's, it kind of shows that the scope of Russian targeting isn't just about, you know, the American partisan play, but is really about Russia's overarching interests. Yeah. And I think this this broadly accords with what we know about Russia's meddling attempts. It was never just about electing Donald Trump. They probably didn't think that they could get Donald Trump elected any more than anybody else thought Donald Trump could get elected. That was just one of the many 
ways that they were trying to to sow confusion and advance their agenda. And this is a, a different way. And certainly it proves that conservatives are not immune. Um, and maybe this will make, I mean, you know, Republicans who are not directly allied with Trump have been pressing for action on Russia, but this should maybe up the urgency for the Republican side of the aisle to take the Russian hacking threat seriously, even though Trump benefited in 2016. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would I would hope that the integrity of our elections would uh, be enough of an inspiration for uh, lawmakers, no matter what stripe, <laughs> to, to take this seriously. Yes, but hope, apparently... Right? Apparently, maybe uh, they, they need something to push them over the edge here. Uh, we'll, we'll see how this is taken up by Congress. But uh, my sense is that Republicans will not be happy that they are targets. So Russian hacking aside, Facebook is back in the news, as it always is. And this time there was a headline in The Washington Post that read Facebook is rating the trustworthiness of its users on a scale from zero to one. Now, Facebook is saying that this is a misleading headline, but basically what the story is about is that in 2015, Facebook started putting the onus on users to flag posts that uh, were misleading or that rather uh, links that that were forwarding false news. And uh, when Facebook started doing that, and it's been doing it now for a few years, there has been a new way that the trolls or people who are trying to game Facebook have taken advantage of this kind of false news reporting system to flag things that they perhaps ideologically disagree with and things that aren't necessarily false. And so one way that Facebook is trying to combat that is by actually raking or, or kind of giving a score to people who flag content for Facebook, right? So people who flag content as false. And uh, that score uh, is something that that they use to kind of triage uh, how seriously to take reports that come in. It kind of makes sense to me that they would have to do this. Uh, and certainly it makes sense that as soon as they opened up the door for people to flag something as false, that there were ideologically motivated actors that took advantage of that. But it certainly caused an uproar this morning uh, amongst people who have been following uh, Facebook and its kind of efforts to, to battle the false news on its platform closely. Yeah. And this is one of those stories where it sounds really bad when you read the headline. It's like, oh, great. Facebook is rating me. Um, but it does, as you said, I mean, it makes sense if Facebook is going to be relying on users to flag posts they need some way to discount the flags of users who are just trying to game the system. So so I get it. But there are some broader concerns here, right? I mean, there are concerns of, okay, maybe for now, they're only giving us the score to use in their misinformation efforts. But maybe when once Facebook starts rating its users, where does it stop? Now, Facebook did say uh, in the Washington Post story that uh, this is just one of kind of a constellation of factors that are taken into account from its misinformation team when deciding kind of how to triage and treat false news uh, false news reports that come in. And so it's not like this is just one static score. And also this score is calculated with machine learning. So that means that it's kind of always changing over time. Uh, it's not necessarily this like permanent fixed thing where if you've been ranked as somebody who repeatedly flags things as false uh, when they're not false, then you're going to be um, kind of regularly not taken seriously by Facebook. Also, this whole like kind of ranking false news score or like false news reporting score doesn't affect other things that you post on Facebook, right? And so uh, it's not going to cause the links that you post into your news feed for your friends and followers to be demoted because you perhaps have a, a score that is uh, that that's poor when it comes to reporting false news. Uh, one thing that I find really interesting here, though, is that uh, it seems like, you know, Facebook is trying to make this whole uh, 
reporting thing work? And there certainly needs to be a reporting mechanism of some kind for users to bring attention to harmful content on Facebook. Uh, And it's going to it's always going to be hard to kind of sort out good faith requests from bad ones. Um, But it's hard for me to know if Facebook really ever took the reporting that seriously to begin with, because it was only this month that Alex Jones serious like serious action was taken on Alex Jones to kind of remove him from Facebook and his stuff has been reported as false and misleading for for many years and uh and you know it's great that they are are trying to kind of weed out the trolls on the system now but I I do wonder uh if they ever took these reports that seriously early on because certainly stuff was allowed to proliferate uh and and spread like wildfire that uh that was notably false yeah, I was actually going to mention this as my tab, but Radiolab had a really good episode this week about how the content moderation policies and practices have evolved at Facebook and how they make these decisions of what uh, images are going to be taken down, what accounts are going to be suspended, that kind of thing. And they were really made at a very low level. They were made by contractors who aren't even Facebook employees, and they're made in a span of seconds a lot of times. It's only in very rare cases like Alex Jones where there's a sort of a coordinated pressure campaign against Facebook to get someone to remove per- a person or reinstate a person who's been removed that it finally rises to the level where the company's actual leaders are looking at it and and evaluating the nuances of the situation. Um, But I I do think that there's the dystopian take here is that Facebook is rating you. I mean, that Dave Eggers novel, The Circle, you got a a social participation (laughs) score, right? Like everybody in the society would get a score from the social network. It sounds like it's in that direction. Uh, From your reporting, I mean, it doesn't seem like Facebook is actually using this for anything except the misinformation reporting. But do you have any concerns that once once Facebook starts rating its users, it opens the door to things like, uh, I don't know, you know, credit uh, companies using some kind of Facebook trustworthiness rating in their credit scores or a regime like China uh, getting Facebook's help to uh, downgrade some of their users or to censor uh, speech by some of their users? Well, I certainly think that there needs to be a way for users to report things to Facebook. And as a network as as big as Facebook that has 2 billion people, you know, there's going to have to be some way to triage those requests. Uh, I'm always weary of uh, scoring people in general instead of like giving them a general strike rule, right? So let's say if you flag something as false when it's not false uh, three times within a certain criteria, then you maybe lose your opportunity to to flag things as false when when they're not. And again, this is only applying to news. This is not about harassment, right? Um, or things that are hate speech. But um, but I will say that you know when it comes to scoring people in in general, or when people are reduced to a score, like test scores or their propensity to return to court for a trial or or make bail or something like that, that score can be really inescapable and it could be used to determine all kinds of other things. So, you know, I'm, I'm always weary of, of, of any sort of scoring. And, and of course, um, there is a chance that that score could be maybe subpoenaed or, or pulled out of context in some way. I will say, though, that, that this is apparently being done using, you know, machine learning. It's a it's a moving score. It's not uh, something that's being used across the platform. But, you know, I'm, I'm always concerned when a company is ranking people. You know, that's, of course, something to be weary about. And one last distinction I, I realized I should make is 
when I was talking about the Radio Lab episode and content moderation, and when we were talking about Alex Jones, that is is usually about what speech can be on Facebook or what people can say. It's an issue of harassment and and moderation. That's separate from what we're talking about with these scores, which is just about misinformation. It's just about passing on so-called fake news in your news feed. I, I think that's the only thing that these scores are applying to right now is your reliability. Well, Alex Jones right? does forward fake news. So I, I think that there's a really thin line here between uh, what like harassment and, and fake news. I think the Alex Jones example still stands here because he was really uh, spewing extremely false claims um, that then led to harassment. Right. Alex Jones definitely does co- go into both of those categories of fake news and harassment. It, it was the harassment that finally got him banned. And that was the thing that relied right. on user reporting. The misinformation, Facebook takes a different approach where when a link is identified as misinformation or flagged by users, I guess now if it's flagged by users that Facebook deems credible, then Facebook will use its algorithm to show that post to fewer people in their news feeds. So Alex Jones was being affected by the misinformation policies. He was only recently cracked down on under their harassment policies. Now, briefly, there's one more thing about Facebook I want to talk about. There was news that came out today. Uh, I believe the first reporting of it was in BuzzFeed. Facebook is removing more than 5,000 ad targeting options to prevent discrimination is the headline on that story. And basically what's being reported here is that advertisers will not be able to target people based on certain things like was pointed out in the BuzzFeed article, Passover or Native American culture or Islamic culture or Buddhism. And these 5,000 targeting options options um, are being removed in an effort to prevent kind of discriminatory ad targeting. And it's something that Facebook has really been taking a lot of heat for lately, particularly uh, after last week, when the Housing and Urban Development Secretary Ben Carson accused Facebook of enabling housing discrimination by allowing uh, realtors and people who try to promote uh, house rentals and, and and housing ads on Facebook uh, by, by targeting those to certain demographics of people or people who are interested in certain religious categories, perhaps, or, or you know, racial uh, interest categories. And uh, and that is now um, being targeted by the federal government as as potentially discriminatory and uh, something that could infringe on people's civil rights. Yeah. And this has been people have been pointing out for a little while now how some of Facebook's advertising categories can be used or could at least theoretically be used in discriminatory ways. There was a report a year ago that you could actually target your ads based on people who are interested in the search term Jew hater or Nazi party Canada, or there were all these terms. And basically it turned out that Facebook hadn't created these targeting categories. Rather, Facebook was just allowing advertisers to target people according to anything that some Facebook user had entered in their profile. And I I think it's, you know, I think this is just an evolution for Facebook from an initially very permissive ad platform where their idea, the idea that Facebook's advertising business was built on was you can target anybody according to anything that they put on Facebook. And it has become very clear that that allows forms of targeting that we find to be racist or sexist or troubling in various ways. And Facebook is belatedly uh, narrowing those options. I think I think this is the right move. I mean, you know, I don't I don't think that there's a great need in the world for advertisers to be able to to target people based on their their race or religion explicitly. Do you? 
You know, I want to share a uh, quote, actually, from Anna Maria Farias, uh, one of HUD's assistant secretaries for Fair Housing and Equal Opportunity. Uh, She told The Washington Post last week, when Facebook uses the vast amount of personal data it collects to help advertisers discriminate, it's the same as closing the door in someone's face, right? And, you know, the Fair Housing Act does explicitly uh, ban uh, housing discrimination, and basically, the Facebook is allowing housing discrimination is what, you know, HUD is saying online. Will, you asked if I think that it makes sense for people to be targeted based on their race uh, or religion or, or any sort of kind of personal category uh, or demographic that they might fall into. And I could see why advertisers would like that. And there's certainly, you know, women's magazines that people would place ads in, you know, hoping that women would see them and, and really don't care if men see them or not. And I see why that would make sense. Uh, but with micro targeting and 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 things that 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 go specifically to people based on, you know, not just their race or not just their gender, uh, but also the zip code that they're in, and also uh, their specific interest in, um, you know, certain hobbies. You know, it can start to get really, really granular. And once you start to know so much about a person, you're able to feed them information that's specifically tailored to what they might react to or clip, click on. You start to enter into a space that feels very manipulative. And uh, I do wonder whether or not that type of micro-targeting really is something that um, should remain as unregulated as it currently is. Yeah, for, for now, we're relying on Facebook to determine what types of targeting are acceptable and what aren't, I guess, except in the case of housing, where there are clear laws specifically about housing ads. I should note that Facebook does still allow you to target based on ethnicity or religion or other uh, sensitive characteristics in certain types of ads. But what's going away is the ability to exclude certain groups. So you can't say, for instance, I want to target everybody except Jews with this ad or even everybody except people interested in Passover. Uh, you can't do that anymore. It's an important distinction. And and I think it's just very interesting to, to look at this because traditionally civil rights laws or, or, or kind of rules that would prohibit, say, a restaurant or a physical business from not serving black people or not serving people because of their gender, you know, would be violating civil rights law. But on the internet, we haven't um, had civil rights laws applied largely because of the Communications Decency Act. That's a law that we've talked about before on this show that was created in the mid-90s that generally gives internet platforms immunity from what their users do or post. Now the kind of uh, bedrock law that has allowed the internet to to grow so wildly uh, because really these internet companies have been immune from, from so much lawsuit is kind of starting to get chipped at. And, and this is really an instance of that. All right, we're going to leave it there for now. And when we come back, we'll have April's interview with Ryan Gallagher. is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. 
That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Our guest today is Ryan Gallagher. Ryan is a U.K.-based investigative journalist at The Intercept, where he reports on digital security and state surveillance issues. He's broken a number of important stories related to disclosures about the National Security Agency from Edward Snowden, including a report about how the NSA ran a secret program to infect millions of computers with malware by posing as a Facebook server in some cases in order to steal data from people's computers. Ryan was also a part of The Intercept's award-winning Drone Papers investigative reporting team that revealed U.S. government assassinations in Yemen, Afghanistan, and elsewhere. Most recently, he broke a big story this month about Google's ambitions in China. Ryan, thanks so much for joining us. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with the news. Ryan, you broke a story at the beginning of the month detailing a secretive Google project called Dragonfly, which is a censored search engine the company was building to launch in China eventually. Only unlike Google search that's used in the rest of the world, this search engine will not make available websites that are banned by the Chinese government and will not answer certain questions that the Chinese government has blacklisted so that as you quoted, no results will be shown when certain words and phrases are entered into the search engine. Can you tell us more about this project, like when it started and, and how far along in development it is? What do we know now? Yeah, so the um, the plan and that Google has been working on since early 2017 and since well, spring 2017, it took off in quite a serious way. They began developing an Android app for Android devices that people will be using in China to access a censored version of Google search. Um, So like you said, it would be like a a version of Google that would restrict Chinese people's access to information that the ruling Communist Party regime uh, finds undesirable, such as information about human rights or information about democracy, political opponents, even religion. Um, you know, very broad categories of information that are are sort of blacked out from uh, the internet that's accessible in China, and Google would have to comply with that to launch the app. And they've been working to develop that for, um, you know, since early last year. But actually, I mean, this has been part of a broader strategy of the the CEO of Google, uh, Sundar Pichai, when he took over at the helm of the company in 2015. He really wants to get back into China. And he has been pushing uh, slowly, incrementally over the last few years. Google has been upping its presence in China. And the big kind of um, end game with that strategy is to launch the censored search, which, of course, I mean, search is at the center of everything Google does. And so uh, Sundar, Mm -hmm. he wants to launch the search again in China. And so uh, this has already been demonstrated to Chinese government officials, right? You said that in your reporting. Yeah, it's been... Uh, Sundar, um, the CEO, he, he's been out and had several meetings with some of the top officials in the Chinese government. Um, one of them, last uh, December, December 2017, he had a closed-door private meeting with uh, Wang Huning, who's one of President uh, Xi Jinping's top foreign policy advisors. Uh, this was a private meeting, uh, Pichai, according to what I've heard, wasn't even allowed to take any of his own, like, um, like his own assistance or anything into the meeting. It was like a, a totally secretive little meeting he had. Um, they've, so they've been having these high-level 
meetings with the Chinese officials uh, on this project. Uh, they've shown demonstrations of, of it. Um, uh, you know, the, they've been pushing very hard to do it. Since we broke the story, uh, there was the Google um, leadership was silent on it for two weeks. To, on Thursday, they uh, made a statement um, internally. They talked to employees briefly about it. They tried to play it mm. down a little bit. They said it was exploratory, that it was a little bit, it was far away from launching at this stage, um, which according to my information is not the case at all. I mean, what, what I was told in documents that I've seen show that, you know, this was extremely serious. They were, they were told as recently as last, last month that they must have it in a launch ready state, ready to go within a matter of weeks pending just getting approval from Chinese officials. That's the only roadblock that they've had until obviously we revealed it and now there's a huge backlash and that's probably a bigger problem for them than anything else. Right. We'll get into uh, some of the internal backlash at Google in a minute. But I want to start off uh, with something that you you said earlier. You said the search is in many ways uh, what Google is. It's really central to Google's whole product suite. And to operate in China would be a massive market for Google, right? And for perspective for folks, it's the world's largest Internet market, I believe. And China is, you know, a fifth of the world's population. Uh, this is not the first time Google has operated in, or they're not operating there yet uh, in terms of search. But this is not the first time Google Google has had a search product in China. There was one in 2006 that operated for four years until 2010. Was that search engine back then censored? And can you tell us why Google pulled out? Yeah, it was censored. The one they operated in 2006 to 2010. Uh, and that was, again, through that period, hugely controversial. There were congressional hearings about it. Senators and uh, um, representatives in the House of Representatives were calling the they actually, Google at one point was labeled as being equivalent to Nazi collaborators. That was some of the rhetoric that was coming out of the Congress at the time. There was very heated discussion back then, too, over the complicity and censorship. Uh, so, yeah, there was a huge amount of heat getting put on Google for that. In the end, they pulled out partly because of the censorship, which was getting incrementally worse. Google had this idea at the start that if we go in there, maybe we can push back against the censorship and we can help open up the Chinese internet. Um, but actually what happened by the end of, of that four-year period was that Google was finding it was being asked to censor more and more as opposed to less and less. So that that was, mm. you know, Sergey Brin, one of the co-founders, he was very uncomfortable with this. He'd grown up in the Soviet Union and he was quite... You know, he had this personal experience of living under a repressive regime and he just was really, he couldn't tolerate the censorship. Uh, but also, um, in the lead up to pulling out in 2010, there was massive hacks of Google's uh, networks uh, that Google was blaming on the Chinese government. The, the, there appeared to be attempts to hack it into human rights activists and journalists' uh, email accounts that were on Gmail. Uh, and so that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in, and they pulled out in 2010. Um, and this is part of why, though, that it's kind of extraordinary that eight years on, they're kind of reversing on everything that they said eight years ago when not much has actually changed in terms of the circumstances in China. If anything, actually, it's gotten a lot worse again with the censorship and the surveillance and yes. all kinds of draconian laws that have been brought in since 2010 that are making the situation more extreme in that regard. So, uh, you know, this is why it has been such a big story, because a lot of people have been quite shocked by the the kind of policy reversal, which is a massive shift on their position in 2010. 
Right. And it's also interesting because in, in June, I believe it was of this year, Google unveiled its own principles for ethical uses of its artificial intelligence programs, which are central to so many things that Google does. And and one of those principles, which would apply here because Google search uses artificial intelligence, uh, was a commitment to not design or deploy, and I'm quoting, technologies whose purpose contravenes widely accepted principles of international law and human rights. Well, uh, you know, the human rights community has come out in strong condemnation of Google uh, for uh, its plans to deploy a censored search engine in China. Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, Reporters Without Borders. What's the concern from the human rights community here? I mean, it, it, some might push back and say, well, if Google is in China, maybe they'll have more of a foothold to to push back against censorship. But as you described as what happened last time, we actually saw censorship ramp up with their presence. There's a bigger question here. Than the, it's not just about the censorship. Obviously, this is a massive, massive part of it. But also to to operate as a, an internet company in China now, there are they have this thing called the data localization laws, and um, it means that uh, any company that wants to go into China has to locate its its data centers and its servers, etc., within in the Chinese mainland. And of course, that creates new um, issues in in terms of privacy, how do you protect your customers' uh, private information that you're holding if it's going to be maintained on the Chinese mainland and consequently the authorities, the Chinese state, can access that data. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, there's so many issues. It's a massive can of worms that is opened by going back into China. And that's another factor because, of course, if what the question is, uh, what happens when the, the Chinese authorities come to Google and demand they provide information on, um, you know, a certain human rights activist, a certain dissident? Google is then forced because, it, I mean, the, the, the Chinese authorities literally would have the power to go in and just seize the servers or, the, you know, the, the hard drives or whatever it may be. And then, then the end result of that is that dissident or that um, the activist being thrown in a detention camp or one of these so-called re-education camps or something like that. And that has happened in the past. Yahoo, about I think it was about a decade ago, got in a terrible situation where they ended up um, ha- having to hand over data on a Chinese activist and that activist was then subsequently thrown in jail. So, you know, there are very real consequences that can come out of this for um, Chinese citizens. And Google hasn't explained at all how it's um, assessed any of these dangers and risks and taken them into consideration. Right. And uh, and so we're not just talking about Google being complicit with the government deciding what people can and cannot know in terms of human rights things or or historical events like Tiananmen Square uh, and in terms of uh, you know, Google handing over user data to the government that could be used in, uh, you know, dangerous, you know, more human rights abusive ways, but also paving the way for other governments to to make similar requests of Google. Now, the, you also mentioned in your reporting that Google is already operating in China in some ways. There is an app on WeChat, which is the China's kind of large social media platform, and and also a website 265.org. Can you tell us a little bit about Google is already operating in China? They have been for several years since, particularly since Sundar Pichai, the CEO, took over in 2015. They have been gradually, incrementally upping their presence in China. Now, when they pulled out in 2010, the search engine, they actually didn't really fully leave China. They stopped doing the search engine, but they kept a presence in China. They have an advertising team that's been based in China who sell 
ad space on foreign Google service, like um, say YouTube uh, that's operating in Hong Kong or you know other parts of the world that's not censored, they will, Chinese companies buy ad space f- f- for um, Google and overseas. And Google has been selling, so that they've always maintained the presence. But since 2015, they've been upping that presence very dramatically. They've had, in the last couple of years in particular, they invested um, JD.com, half a, more than half a billion dollars in an online company called JD.com. They mm-hmm. launched an um, artificial intelligence research center in Beijing. They launched a Google uh, translate app specific to the Chinese market. The WeChat game that you mentioned, um, they had uh, also a file manager app too. So that these things have been, this is all the last couple of years, a lot of activity from Google in this area. And this is all part, and I know this for a fact based on what I've seen in documents and what I've had from sources, this was part of a broader strategy to basically ingratiate themselves, Google as a company, with the Chinese government to to make the Chinese government more comfortable again with Google, to show the Chinese government that Google is willing to invest in China, um, that Google can be good for China. And, you know, the ultimate aim of that, like I said, was to, to get to the position where Google would then get permission to launch the search and that's what they needed they actually needed to get approval from the Chinese government's internet regulator and they've been building up to that for years now through all this incremental progress in terms of launching apps, investing in Chinese companies, launching the the artificial intelligence research centre and just finally they they also maintained um, you mentioned the 265.com website which they've been using uh, it's a Chinese-based website that it has a search function on it, but the search function redirects to Baidu, which is the main Chinese search engine. But Google's been using this as a kind of honeypot to collect intelligence, if you like, on what Chinese people search for on Baidu, but they've been using their own website to do that, which is actually quite an extraordinary detail. Um, And... Uh, this is part of what I found out from some of these documents. They were using that to to basically look at what Chinese people are searching for, and then uh, implement that um, information into the search engine they've been building for China, so that they can basically pre implement the um, blacklist, etc., in advance of launching the thing in China. So they already know what's being searched for, the, the kinds of websites that they need to remove out and all that kind of thing. And they we're integrating that with the help of this 265.com website. And you mentioned earlier that Google management said that this is in a very initial phase, but that really conflicts with your reporting, which said that I, I think over 100 people at Google uh, have been working on this project. And it seems like once you have that many people, it's kind of out of an, an early phase, even if it really wasn't well publicized throughout the company. And in fact, it wasn't well publicized to the point where Sergey Brin said that he first heard about it from your reporting. Can you fill us in on uh, the internal Google arguments that have been happening and and uh, kind of uh, clashes that have been happening inside the company as a result of your reporting here? Yeah, well, the thing about it not being well-developed, that is an absolute nonsense. It's a total lie. I mean, it's just not true. And the documents just are clear. I've The information I had from sources is really, really good. And I know for a fact that this was well beyond 
um, just some. So he tr- they tried to present it at this meeting, Sundar, as if it was a kind of just a little wacky, quirky thing that was maybe happening in the corner that wasn't really all that serious. That could not be further further from <laughs> right. the truth. This this thing was extremely serious to the point, like I said, last month they were told they had to have it in a launch ready state to be ready to go live within a matter of weeks pending the approval from the Chinese government. And the only thing that was delaying um, and it was um, causing them problems was actually the political issues around the, the trade war that's going on now because of the tariffs that President Trump's been putting on, that that had actually slowed down Google's discussions with the Chinese government. That was what they were talking about last month before we exposed it. So this thing was so it's completely serious and was really, it could have been launched if the things changed with the trade war and suddenly, um, you know, the, the tensions cooled again and Google got the permission, it would have been ready to launch it within a short space of time. And that's where it was gearing up to do. It actually had already built the technology to the point that it was ready to deploy. Um, but yeah, so um, <laughs> in answer to your actual question there, um, the, the response when we disclosed it, so there were only a few hundreds of Google's employees actually who were who had knowledge of the plan. Um, and there are 88,000 employees of Google worldwide. So the percentage that knew was about, I worked out, 0.35% of the entire workforce had knowledge of it. So this was kept extremely secret, partly because of the political controversy they knew would explode if it got out. When it did get out, the news spread right obviously across the company because people can then read it online and there was a huge um, flurry of news reporting that came out as soon as we broke the story. Other news organizations were also able to corroborate what we reported. And um, the, the response inside the company, a lot of people were very, very angry. They were very angry because, first of all, they didn't know about it. They felt that that in itself was like a betrayal because Google claims to have quite an open and transparent workplace where people can discuss problems, they share issues, they debate, they debate, um, you know, whatever is going on in their working life, and they can they can do that openly. But then also the other dimension, of course, was the fact that not only was it kept secret from them, the project itself to go into be complicit in Chinese government censorship. A lot of Google employees, that's not what they signed up for. You know, they they kind of believe in the, the mission statement of Google to open up the world's information, to not be evil as the, the sort of early um, motto of Google used to be. And there's been a letter going around inside Google um, demanding a, an ombudsman to review what they say are the serious moral and ethical issues that are raised by the project. I think nearly 2,000 people at least since I last heard have now signed that. And, um, you know, they're demanding more transparency and more um, information about actually what what has gone on and, you know, who was making the decisions. Because one of the extraordinary details that we've learned in the last few days was that Sergey Brin, the co-founder of the company, said that he had no idea that this was going on, that he learned about it through the, the news reports himself. And that just stunned me because he, in 2010 was the one inside Google advocating strongly to get out of China because he couldn't stomach the censorship. So the idea that the company would now do a a complete 180 on the censorship position regarding China and not loop in Sergey at all so that he is completely unaware of it and he's a co-founder of the company, he's still on the board of directors. Uh, I just couldn't... I was really baffled by that. I, I knew that he had... 
he had taken a more hands-off role completely, and he's been kind of going off and doing his own thing. But he's still on the board of directors, and given that he has this strong position on censorship, it just was extraordinary to me that he never knew about it. And I think actually that explained why there was a long silence from Google internally um, before they actually confronted employees about it, because they were probably having to get Sergey and maybe other members of the board up to speed on exactly what was going on. I mean, it's still not clear to me who on the board, if anyone knew about it, or if this was just being sort of pushed through by Cinder. Um, I presume some of them must have known about it. It was such a massive thing strategically and politically for the company. It would be, you know, remarkable if, if no one on the board knew about it. Well, it certainly was kept under lots of secrecy, and the pushback from employees does follow a string of events where Google employees have pushed back against controversial projects at the company. I'm thinking earlier this summer, we saw Project Maven uh, get abandoned by Google. That was their project to uh, build AI for drones with the Department of Defense. And then last year, we saw great pushback internally at Google around their decision as to how they handled the case with uh, former Google engineer James Damore, who wrote a memo that went incredibly viral throughout the company and outside the company, detailing how women engineers uh, were less biologically capable of, of doing their work than than male engineers. Uh, so this is certainly uh, something we're seeing more of at Google in terms of employees pushing back. And, uh, and the silence was deafening in that it lasted so long in this case. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. It was great having you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. One final break, and then we'll have Don't Close My Tabs. That's when we talk about the tabs that we couldn't close this week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Okay, Will, what have you left open in your browser? All right, I literally for three days have had open the tab of Radio Lab's most recent episode. The whole episode was devoted to content moderation on Facebook. And it starts by taking us all the way back to 2008 when Facebook was still this fledgling social network. It was still smaller than MySpace. But there was a controversy back then where the site would not allow nudity and some mothers who posted pictures of them breastfeeding their babies had their pictures taken down or had some action taken against their accounts. That understandably made them very upset. They protested. And so Facebook eventually amended the rule and said, all right, no nudity except breastfeeding. And according to this episode, so began a 10-year-long process of making rules, like no nudity, and then being forced to go back and amend them or make exceptions to the rules or exceptions to the exceptions because there is no single set of rules that can be enforced in a way that is consistent with fairness or common sense 
or decency for all 2.2 billion Facebook users who are on the site today around the world in all of the different, different countries and cultural contexts in which Facebook operates. So this episode just takes you into the mechanics of how the decisions are actually made as to what images can stay, which ones are taken down, what exceptions to make to the rules. It's a fascinating look at how we ended up with this weird patchwork of rules for what you can and can't say today on the world's largest social network. Yeah, I uh, listened to it, but it took me three days to find the time to listen to all of it. I guess I'm not really a good podcast listener, even though I have a podcast. But it's just very, very radio labby. So it was easy for me to get distracted and kind of stop listening. Um, But it was very, very good, too. And I recommend people read it as well. I'm happy I did. All right, April, what was your tab this week? My tab this week came from Jezebel, one of my longtime favorite publications, and it's by Kashmir Hill, one of my favorite journalists. Uh, And it is called How a Woman Disappeared from the History Books. It is about a recent New York Times Magazine story that was very lengthy. It was a cover story that was itself titled The Unlikely Activists Who Took on Silicon Valley and Won. And that was about this kind of long fight in California to pass a privacy law. Um, And it's a... A great story. Uh, It's about the Californians for Consumer Privacy and kind of the multimillionaire real estate tycoon Alistair McTaggart, um, who kind of used California's ballot initiative process to to force the states to to pass this so it didn't kind of get thrown into the pit of extreme democracy, kind of shoehorn legislators to push this through. But it also erased somebody who uh, was a key person in this fight. And her name was Mary Stone Ross. She used to work for the CIA and the House Intelligence Committee. And she worked on the project with McTaggart and his friend Rick Arney, uh, who works in finance, uh, who uh, is mentioned in the story. So both Arney and McTaggart are in the story, but Ross is not in the story. And Ross was one of the main people that uh, that worked on this initiative uh, and kind of, you know, worked to, you know, edit versions of it and work to 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 push it forward uh, and was one of the the main people. But she wasn't in this 8,500-word cover story in New York Magazine. And I really recommend taking the time actually to read this piece in Jezebel. Uh, I'm not going to get too into it from uh, from Kashmir Hill because it uh, is kind of walks through how uh, women get erased from the history books. And, uh, and I remember when I read this story about a week ago, the New York Magazine story, and I uh, was familiar with kind of the background process here and, and knew that Ross was involved, I was surprised that she wasn't mentioned anywhere. And I'm really happy that Hill took the time to, to tell not only Mary Stone Ross's story, but also walk through what happens when women get deleted from these uh, from from these powerful kind of, you know, New York magazine stories that w- will be kind of used uh, by people that want to know the history of how things happened. Yeah, good story, full of nuance. Um, I really enjoy Kashmir Hill's reporting. All right, that's our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. Send us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions, or just say hi. Thanks for sending emails. We get them. It's very hard to respond to all of them, but we do appreciate the feedback and do read it. Thanks to everyone who does that. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser, and Will is at Will or Remus. Thanks again to our guest, Ryan Gallagher. You can find his work at theintercept.com and on Twitter at RJ underscore Gallagher. 
And thanks to everyone who has left us a comment or a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. And thanks to Alberto Hernandez at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley. And thanks to Topher Ruth at Northgate Studios in Berkeley. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys.